Welcome. You're listening to the Field Blend Project podcast. The Field Blend Project aims to promote the convergence of science, wine, and creativity by creating a space for education and discussion. Here, we believe in sharing bottles and sharing knowledge. We strive to unravel the intricacies of the wine industry by diving deep into topics regarding wine. I'm your host, Kayleen Bryson, and I'm excited that you're here. This week, we sit and talk to Alex Whitener, who is Dr. Whitener technically, and she is a longtime friend of mine from high school, actually, Um, and she now has her PhD from Washington State University and is an entomologist by training. She currently works for FMC Agricultural Solutions, um, where she currently manages research programs for specialty crops in the Pacific Northwest. Specifically, she follows uh, particular chemistries and they were acquired by this company and are integral into integrated pest management. So um, she covers everything from plant pathology uh, and weed science in her role um, and also manages research projects and provides scientific and technical support to her regional sales team. So she has her scientific prowess along multiple sectors of this industry. but. Today, we're talking specifically about integrated pest management as it relates to viticulture and also phylloxera. So we briefly discuss what phylloxera is, what the history of phylloxera is, because it's it's a fascinating history and a very cool story, Um, what phylloxera's mode of damage is, why it was so devastating for Vitis vinifera. Um, and off of that, we talk about rootstocks. What are rootstocks? What is the role of phylloxera and rootstocks? What does it mean to be certified organic? What does it mean to be non-organic? What is IPM? Is it regulated? All of these questions we tackle today. So let's sit down and talk about IPM. All right. Howdy, everybody. Um, Kayleen here. I hope everyone had a great June. Thank you for, you know, letting us kind of do our thing for a while there. It was a, it was a busy month. <laughs> um, I defended my PhD in biochemistry. On, well, I, def- I did the part where you talk a whole bunch on May 30th, and then everything was due on June 13th. And so I kind of just jumped ship for a while there. Um, but I'm excited to be back. Um, we recorded this podcast back in... Oh gosh, October of 2018, I believe. Um, and this is going to be part of a, can a series be two parts? I don't know. If it can, it's a two part series. If it can't, it's one of two parts on viticulture specifically. And, um, this is coming from the perspective of an entomologist and someone who has studied, um, sort of the scientific aspect more so than the experience aspect of viticulture. Um, And specifically today, as was stated in the introduction, we're talking about phylloxera and we're also talking about integrated pest management and how it uh, differs if you're trying to do um, certified organic vineyards versus non-organic vineyards. Um, And we sit and talk with my friend Alex. Um, Alex and I have been friends for a very long time. We went to the same undergrad. We both got our bachelor's from Western Washington University and then she stayed in Washington and went to Washington State University for her PhD and I moved to California. Um, sorry, it's called Washington State University is called Wazoo if you are in Washington State. So she went to Wazoo um, because they have like an incredible ag program, just like 
phenomenal. Um, and so her training is some of the, some of the best that you can get in the nation. And, and I think it's really going to show in this podcast. Um, so that being said, there were no corrections from Pete's last podcast. Um, we were talking via social media and I made a comment that was inaccurate. Um, via Instagram, we were talking about ways that you can halt malolactic fermentation. And I commented that you could add SO2 to halt malolactic fermentation. Um, and Pete made a very important distinction that even if you can temporarily halt malolactic fermentation, once that SO2 gets used up, because SO2 or sulfur dioxide is an antioxidant um, and an antimicrobial, but once it gets used up by other things within the bottle or within the, the wine itself, um, and is no longer serving its purpose, you can get a spontaneous re-fermentation. And so the only sure fire way to um, protect yourself against a subsequent fermentation, if you have residual malic acid or residual sugar, is to, is to filter. There is no other guaranteed way, if you want to retain malic acid and sugar levels, and you want to ensure that you're not gonna get a secondary fermentation, um, to prevent a secondary fermentation except for filtration. Um, and so I thought that was really important to add into here, mostly because I'm going to jump on a soapbox for like 30 seconds here. The important part about, oh, there's a lot of important parts, but right? One of the important parts about being a scientist is that you can admit when what you're stating is not perfect and not validated by data. And so it's critical to me that when I communicate things to the, the general, more broad audience here, that I'm not communicating them from a place of pride. I'm communicating from a place of data and from a place of facts. And it's more important to me that I allow myself to be wrong than I am to mislead you on data, right? I, I hope that makes sense because there's this... this um the veil of pride can inhibit you from truth, right? And science doesn't have truth in air quotes here. Science just has a repetition of pieces of information that lead to similar conclusions. Um, but it's incredibly important that I want, I want you to know that you can trust me to fall on my own sword when I am wrong, as opposed to convey an incorrect information. And so I really appreciate it when my guests are like, oh, Keeling, like you misspoke there, or like, that's not the best way to communicate this, or you may be wrong. Um, and so this is why we have a little segment on corrections here, because you are never always right. Just forget about it. And um, I have more faith in people when they can admit their faults and admit when they're wrong than when they constantly try and be right. So um, I hope this comes through in this podcast and I hope that you can trust me to always convey to you what the data indicates. Not what I think, not what, um, not, not that I am the be all to end all of scientific truths in wine, but rather that I can critically analyze data and succinctly prepare it to you in a way that is consistent with what the community believes to be true at this moment in time. Whether or not that changes in the future is independent of this moment in time. But for now, the, what we're conveying is what we know to be true to our most certain degree. Sorry, <laughs> that was a little bit of a soapbox, but um, I think that's really important and it's not 
talked about enough, especially within the winemaking community, um, which is a whole nother soapbox that we'll save for another day, because right now we're going to talk about bugs with Alex. So without further ado, let's um, get to the podcast and the interview with uh, Dr. Whitener on integrated pest management and phylloxera. Alex, thank you for coming and hanging out with me. Um, it's been awesome to actually get to spend time with you. We don't get to do that a lot. Yeah. Alex is actually a girlfriend of mine back from high school and college, and she just came down to visit because she's doing some work stuff and was like, hey, I can come down to Santa Cruz for a couple days. And I was like, sweet, you want to talk about bugs? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Thank you for coming. So can you explain to people, uh, first of all, who are you and where are you from and what's your background in it? From an educational perspective. Yeah, so I'm, I'm Alex Whitener. I grew up in the Wenatchee area, which is sort of the, the heart of tree fruit and stone fruit, fruit country in Washington State. And uh, I started initially thinking I was going into the medical field. Um, and then when I went to go finish my undergrad at Wa- Western Washington University, um, I came back every summer and started working for an entomologist who was involved in tree fruit research. And it was fascinating Plot twist, to me. she got the job that I wanted that I didn't get. <laughs> there we go. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> My mom had me apply for that job and I did Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, because you did. Oh, crazy. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Hey, it worked out, man. Yeah, hey. <laughs> but I'm really glad that I, I ended up getting that job because it, it, it gave me a... A plot twist in my own life of where I was going in science. I always knew I wanted to do something in science, but just didn't really know what. And coming back every summer to do that um, that seasonal technician job of checking traps and and identifying and, and quantifying the insects in them, uh, looking at phylogenies and summarizing the data. And I'd, I'd leave for you know attending school at Western not knowing what happened with that data. And when I showed interest in that with my then boss and then eventually my PhD advisor, um, it, it just gave me a, a better direction in terms of where I wanted to focus my studies within science. So she encouraged cool. me to sort of harness that curiosity, um, see if there was something there. And sure enough, there was. And I'm really glad um, throughout my PhD program later, um, I really kind of reevaluated like, I really like where I am and it just gave me, um, I can't think of the word. <laughs> Sorry. I'm probably going to have to edit this part now. <laughs> um, but anyways, um, she encouraged me to, to look into that for graduate school. And so I started doing some, um, some research into what doing something in entomology would entail. And, uh, I've always had this connection with agriculture. I grew up doing 4-H Mm-hmm. Uh, raising animals, and, and we've always had a, a sort of a hobby farm, and I've always been fascinated by insects, and that's the ironic part, is I never thought that that would turn into a job for me. I always thought it was just a, a thing in nature that I really liked. Well, because when you're a kid, they tell you, like, what do you want to be when you grow up, and you're like, a ballerina, or a jazz yeah. singer, or, or like a doctor. A comedian, because I didn't know what the word veterinarian was, and I, so I thought comedian was a veterinarian. <laughs> that's legit. <laughs> and my mom likes yeah. to tell that story to embarrass me. Well, they give you, like, uh-huh. they give... 
they used to give kids like a really narrow path of like oh, what yeah. a job a was. Doctor or yeah. kids probably don't know what a lawyer is. But a librarian. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. we digress. Yeah, yeah. So I, I applied for graduate school right when spotted wing Drosophila arrived in the United States or in North America in general. And that's a small vinegar fly that's invasive um, to anywhere outside of Asia. And it's a pest of cherries and berries and some other specialty crops. And it just was perfect timing because here I was, newly interested in entomology, and uh, when you get a new invasive species like that that threatens a $500 million industry, <laughs> you tend to get some really supportive stakeholders. Say, people, people suddenly really give a shit about flies. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Like teeny tiny little flies that yeah. are just a few millimeters long become really, really important. Yeah, yeah and so there's a lot of uh, grant money at that point. Um, up for grabs and uh, that that's sort of the the research project that I got saddled with and I'm really grateful for it because I actually started working with spotted wing drosophila before graduate school cool uh, so I, I got to see it sort of from the beginning of how you begin studying an invasive species that threatens agriculture so that's what I did for five years finishing my PhD I, I had the opportunity to skip my master's which um, I'm really grateful for. I have a feeling that if I had done a master's, I probably wouldn't have gone on to finish my PhD. Yeah, probably. I, yeah, I, I think I that agree. happens to a lot of people. And um, yeah, I'm grateful that I that I ended up taking that approach. Yeah. I mean, a master's degree is also fantastic. Absolutely. You know, it's yeah. Like, and the, the two things that a master's versus a PhD give you are... Yeah. You know, not to be taken lightly. No, not at all. They're, they're both extremely valuable. And, and within the structure of science and how research is done, um, it just depends on what kind of role you would like to play in that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I knew the role that I wanted uh, and I learned more about it throughout graduate school. It's not like I just knew everything about it right from the beginning. Uh, I actually really didn't know what I was getting myself into uh, oh, none, none until after that first year, right? None of us do, yeah. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about uh, phylloxera, which is an incredibly important part of wine history and wine, the current status of wine and how we think about viticulture and really just wine, wine as a whole. Um, and we're also going to be talking about integrated pest management. So can we get started by just defining what phylloxera even is? Yeah. So phylloxera is kind of a unique uh, insect because it sort of looks like an aphid, but it's not an aphid. It, it We call it a plant louse or a root louse, but again, uh, these common names kind of introduce some confusion. It's not actually a louse per se, because when people think of lice, they think of what's on your chickens or what your kids might come home from preschool with. Um, and, and that is a a parasite of, of mammals or other um, uh, other animals, but the, these are lice in the sense that they are sort of the equivalent to plants. Uh, so phylloxera are fairly unique. Uh, they feed on the root system. Uh, they can also, the nymphs can also cause galling on, on the foliage uh, of grapes. Uh, so, so they're considered a pest insect when they reach economically damaging levels in grapes, but you can also have phylloxera that just are there and they can feed on the rootstock, uh, but they're not actually causing significant damage depending on things like soil and other environmental factors. So to give a little background into why we care about phylloxera and why we even care about 
IPM or insects or anything. So phylloxera in the early early twenty early to yeah earlyish twentieth century affected a lot of vineyards globally. So a lot of vineyards in France, a lot of vineyards in California, um, and it wiped out I believe in France like over two thirds mm-hmm. of, of vineyard acreage land, which was just absolutely insane. And it travels really quickly via flooding or um, a couple of other modes of transmission as well. And so. Um, it was absolutely devastating to the wine industry. And we're going to talk a little bit later about how we address those problems with rootstocks. But it was sort of like the first instance of the wine industry having a huge collapse from a microorganism. You yeah. know, micro is pushing it, but from, from a little bug, literally from yeah, a little bug. very, very small. <laughs> um, and it made the wine industry sort of realize that thinking about these interactions between small species and viticulture is incredibly important from an economic standpoint and from a farming standpoint. Um, it was also a huge pain in the because <laughs> one of the hits of phylloxera also sort of time-wise coincided with prohibition and uh, sort of the tail end of the Great Depression. And just, oh, yeah. God, man. And that's always it's been seriously a, really... a wonder that wine made it through oh, all that yeah. garbage, you know? <laughs> that's always been a fascinating aspect of it to me. My, my background is my undergrad was anthropology and biology. And when you look at like the history of when invasive species or when uh, economically damaging things occur within agriculture and look at what's going on in society at the same time, there's some pretty fascinating stories to be told about that. Yeah. And, uh, and, and like you said, it's the, probably one of the most devastating things that happened to the grape industry in France. I like to consider it basically the, the plague equivalent mm-hmm. i mean you knock That's out a, yeah. two-thirds of the human population with plague uh but then it also highly entomologically connected um but then in terms of grapes i mean two-thirds of of the grape production just wiped out that's a, an incredible bottleneck event yeah what is phylloxera's mode of damage yeah so uh they feed on the roots and roots are, are in a plant to uh to bring up nutrients and, and moisture into the plant uh, and so when the roots are fed upon, it reduces the plant's ability to, to do those things. And uh, that prevents them from uh, you know, becoming a vigorous, healthy plant. Do and they know exactly what phylloxera does to the roots? Do they know how it jacks it up? Um, you know, I don't, I don't think we fully understand the mechanism behind it because we also don't fully, to my knowledge, recognize uh, how exactly resistant rootstocks play a role in preventing the damage. Okay. Um, but I, I do know that, you know, reducing um, the biomass of the root and uh, the, the feeding that, that occurs, uh, there's some thought that there's a, a toxin in the saliva that, that also damages uh, the roots. But, but what we do know is that when it does feed on the roots, it introduces this sort of perfect storm for pathogens uh, to move in. So you get like sooty black rot and some other things that uh, take advantage of that environment that phylloxera has created so if so if a vine gets phylloxera a lot of nasty homies tend to come with it too absolutely they're oh, like cool. hey this plant has reduced um vigor and has reduced basically its defenses are down because they're focusing on this form of herbivory that's that's occurring and they're they're going to take advantage of of that situation oh wow god that sucks <laughs> uh so it's essentially just devastating because the vine can get essentially no nutrients. Is that fair to say? Or is it limited? I think it just limits it. Yeah. What's the phenotype of 
um, sorry, what what do, what do vines look like that have been affected by phylloxera? Yeah, so they'll they'll have uh, reduced foliage. Um, they won't look as uh, healthy and voluptuous as a as a healthy grapevine. Um, and then if you look at the rats, or the, the rats, the roots. <laughs> um, if you look at the roots, then uh, I guess I was thinking about plague and rats. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but when you look at the roots, they uh, they're reduced in biomass. They're smaller. Um, again, that. Um, uh, different types of rots can occur that uh, blacken the roots as well. So. Do, do the leaves look any different? You know, I'm not, oh, absolutely. Um, in terms of the root feeding, I don't know if the leaves look different from that, but the nymphs of phylloxera, that's the uh, immature forms, uh, they can cause galling on the leaves. And, and galling is a uh, plant uh, immune response to being fed upon. So uh, when you get bit by a mosquito, you have a histamine response that re- results in swelling and some itching, and, and you get this bump. Uh, when phylloxera nymphs feed on um, a leaf or, or another insect's, uh, insect feeds on a part of a plant, you can have this galling effect, which creates this, this bump, which, which can result in a couple of different things. You, you have this bump that uh, creates this environment that the nymph likes to live around, but you also can uh, create... A, a better feeding site in terms of something's going on physiologically in the plant that makes what the nymph is feeding on better for hmm. them, either nutritiously or, or for whatever other reason. So it just propagates itself, essentially. I believe so, yeah. Cool, what an asshole. <laughs> <All right. laughs> so the way we, as a wine industry, got around phylloxera, more or less, is a, a really cool story. And I think we need to start with defining parts of the story, the key players of the story. So the word rootstock, can you define what a rootstock is? Because it's going to be pertinent yeah. for the, the story of how we combated phylloxera. Yeah, so uh, rootstocks are sort of the building block uh, for a lot of different areas of agriculture. This is true in vineyards. It's also true in, in tree fruit. Uh, they are basically the, if you were to break down a plant, you have this this root system and either a stem or a trunk um, and then you have the fruiting part on top of that, and that's where the foliage and the fruit uh, originate. And so when you have a rootstock, um, you are grafting the fruit-producing part onto that. So that's the first part of your building blocks uh, when it comes to a vineyard, is a rootstock. Yeah, we were talking last night about, or the <laughs> night before, whatever it was, like how you can, it's sort of not appropriate, but it's helpful to think of vines sort of as like little Legos. Absolutely. And you can take yeah. that little Lego piece that is a rootstock and you can put a different colored Lego on top. Yeah. You know, and, and what will happen is the, the different colored Lego that you put on top is going to be what you get an output from, but that Lego on the bottom, your foundational Lego, can be totally different and can have a totally different function. Absolutely. And this comes in, in handy when it comes to producing something that we like. So if you think of like the wild um, original type of a plant, so like a wild apple, you probably wouldn't want to eat that because it's going to have a lot of seeds, it's not going to be as sweet, the tannins and the sugars are going to be obnoxiously out of whack. Um, But when we domesticate something that we like and that we want to eat, uh, we tend to lose some of these natural defenses that plants have. Because if you think about it, we're herbivores too, and we're damaging to plants uh, when it comes to terms to eating them. Yeah, yeah. we are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> I love plants. They're pretty yeah. darn tasty. Oh, I'm a huge fan. Yeah, but <laughs> but if we can uh, leave some of those wild defenses in our rootstock and breed 
uh, these things that we really like into the fruiting part, uh, thinking of uh, them as a, as a Lego system is really helpful because the Lego on the bottom, the rootstock, if you were to let that fruit, it would probably be really disgusting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but when you graft something really tasty onto it, mm -hmm. then you have this really hardy, uh, hopefully resistant to several different uh, aspects of damage uh, rootstock and then something tasty on top. So do we know how different rootstocks can be like resistant to phylloxera, for example, or have resistance to whatever thing it is that you want it to be resistant to? Yeah, so there's different um, sort of pros and cons down the list. You're not going to have a resistant rootstock that is sort of like the package deal and great at everything. Right. A rootstock that is, for instance, nematode resistant um, may not necessarily be um, uh, phylloxera resistant or um, perhaps like water efficient in terms of water uptake. And are these rootstocks naturally resistant to nematodes or phylloxera or do we cross hybridize them to get there? Yeah, they've, or? they've been selectively bred for this purpose. Um, uh, I'm again. I'm an entomologist, not a plant geneticist. Right. Sorry, that was oh, a little yeah, off Oh, that's hard. good. Yeah. No, I, I do have a, an apple breeding friend who uh, explained a lot of this to me in terms of uh, when they're selecting traits. So they'll have all these different um, different varieties that they're looking at, and they pick and choose traits that they like. And and when you do this uh, selective breeding and hybridizing things and crossing them. Um, you don't always know what you're going to get at the end. You might take something that you really like from this plant and really like from this one uh, or the varieties and then when you cross them you might get the things that you didn't like from both of them in the result. Or you might get something that you liked from this one but the thing that you liked from this one didn't turn out. Yeah. So I'm thinking like um, that cliche like if anybody knows like the Mendel diagram, oh, right? yeah, I'm totally absolutely. thinking about that. And I have yeah. like, a, like a shitty apple over here and a good apple yeah, over here. And, yeah. 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 And things just sort of trickle down. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Mendelian and... genetics with the peas and stuff. Yeah. I, <laughs> God, I, I wish it was that, that simple. Oh, well, I know <laughs> but, it's not. Yeah. 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 So can you explain the story <clears throat> of C.D. Riley? Yeah. Like go down to the basics because this is fundamental to understanding phylloxera within the wine industry. Yeah, so C.V. Riley um, is an entomologist, or was an entomologist, a very well-known entomologist. When it comes to uh, graduate students and entomology programs, there are a few key players that we consider like fathers of different forms of entomology. Um, Thomas Say and E.O. Wilson are other really famous entomologists that any of us should know about. Um, but C.V. Riley was accredited uh, with essentially saving the, the French wine industry um, with resistant rootstocks. And there were a lot of other key players in that process. It's not just C.V. Riley being the hero of everything. But I'm an entomologist, so maybe a little bit biased in my yeah. story. I don't actually know the other key players. Uh, C.V. Riley is the only <laughs> one that I'm familiar with. But there were other plant breeders involved in this as well. Um, but what C.V. Riley observed was that these American rootstocks were resistant to phylloxera. And uh, unfortunately, even though he is credited with saving the French wine industry by, by sending these rootstocks over, um, I believe it was, it was either downy or powdery mildew, but we basically just were like, here's the thing that's going to save your wine industry, and oh, by the way, we're going to give you this pest too. Uh, oh, really? Obviously not on purpose, but um, yeah, oh. I'm pretty sure that's how it was introduced to maybe all of Europe. But um, yeah, so I mean, <laughs> pros and cons, right? Yeah. Um, when you're introducing So where is C.B. Riley from? Like, what's do you know his background is? You know, I actually don't. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't either. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I want to yeah. say that he spent some time in California, but yeah, I yeah, don't know that probably, for sure. Probably. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So C.B. Riley essentially was the person who just observed the fact that they didn't get phylloxera and just made this click in his head of... Yeah, yeah. And so... It, how um, did he know it was the rootstock? Is it because they were different? Like, were the, were the roots and the grapes that were grafted onto those American rootstocks that he was observing... So I don't, I'm not sure about the uh, the grapes that were grafted onto them, but it was the the rootstock part mainly because of the the mode of how phylloxera causes damage. Right, so they're feeding on the roots. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, that, so you can just look at that essentially, like look mm-hmm. at the roots. Yeah, it's like an isolation kind of experiment where, um, you know, I'm not sure how the actual experiment was conducted or, or how that was necessarily mm-hmm. observed, but uh, when you're looking at different kinds of rootstocks and you see oh, this one's not as well damaged, or or this one uh, is more resilient to damage. Because right. that's the thing. So these resistant rootstocks can still have phylloxera feeding on them, uh, and, and phylloxera can still reproduce on them, but they just might not be in these like high uh, pestiferous numbers that actually cause economic damage. Okay. And that's actually a good segue into integrated pest management of IPM... As, as a whole, is not meant to eradicate a pest. It's not meant to completely wipe it out from the system. If not, your natural enemies or your good insects aren't going to have right. any food or anything to feed on. Um, and so basically keeping an insect pest, or, or any other type of pest for that matter, um, when it comes to diseases and things like that, keeping them at managing levels that aren't causing economic damage. Right. So let's segue then. So let's use phylloxera as the example, but how, from an integrated pest management perspective, might you handle phylloxera, and is it going to be different between an organic vineyard and a conventional vineyard? Yeah, so so IPM as a whole, uh, there's several different um, goals of IPM, and one of them is to reduce uh, chemical inputs. Uh, the other is to use a variety of different uh, pest management techniques that, uh, that, that essentially accomplish that, but also... Um, when you, when you think of a farmer, they don't have a lot of time. There's a lot of responsibilities. Uh, you need to mitigate risk because risk can be costly. Um, and you have a couple of other things that you're juggling at the same time. Just more, a few. More than a couple. Yeah. yeah. And so when it comes to uh, grape phylloxera, it's kind of a, one of the most unique, in my opinion, one of the most unique IPM things because um, we don't really have any chemical defenses at all. When you think of a, a new pest... Uh, chemical defense tends to be sort of the first thing we reach for while we're researching these integrative, um, less uh, less intensive sort of approaches. And so there, there really isn't anything for phylloxera because of where it is uh, in the soil and uh, it's hard to penetrate with, with chemicals. So grape phylloxera is this highly unique one that is purely addressed by um, genetic aspects and cultural control aspects. So paying attention to your soils, your pH in your soil, drainage, um, looking at how you handle equipment on uh, at your vineyard and if you're sharing equipment, that can all have an impact on whether or not phylloxera becomes a problem. Um, but then also genetics, and that is right. another pillar of IPM. So if we think of integrated pest management as sort of this coliseum, all these different pillars, the pillars are the types of control that we employ. So that's chemical, biological, cultural, behavioral, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and those sort of this foundation below those pillars uh, holding them up are other tools that we can use to determine whether or not control needs to be employed. 
And, and that's quantifying whether or not you even have that pest in your vineyard uh, or other agricultural system, correctly identifying it. Because uh, if, you, if you try to look at an insect and, and don't correctly identify it, you might be thinking that you need to employ control where you actually have a biological control agent. You might be confusing a pest insect with a with a beneficial one. Right, absolutely. Uh, so yeah. taxonomy is highly important. Make sure you're making sure that you are correctly identifying the insect. And that and that's where an entomologist uh, can be helpful in an agricultural system. So does IPM just inherently tend to be organic as not, a consequence? Not necessarily. Um, it's interesting. So when when you look at phylloxera management from a um, from an organic or a conventional standpoint, um, and, and in organic systems, we still can use insecticides. They just have to be OMRI certified, which is the, the group that says whether or not an insecticide or a pesticide can be used in an organic system. So IPM can can span both organic or conventional agriculture. And, and when you look at the pros and cons or the pluses and the minuses for different types of systems, uh, you can have an organic uh, grower who has to spray on a calendar, and uh, if you think about the inputs of that, you also have a, a carbon footprint to take into consideration and, and the chemical inputs all together. And, uh, and then you can have a conventional grower who is super in tune to what's going on in that system, uh, keeping tabs on the densities of the different pests that, that they have or, or the natural enemies that they're finding uh, in their system. Uh, who might have a softer approach uh, in a conventional system. So it's apples to oranges uh, across the board. And so you can use IPM in organic, but you can also use IPM in conventional. Is there any regulation on either like a state or federal level regarding IPM? So actually, and this might surprise a lot of people, but IPM is not, uh, it's not like organic where you have to have this certification um, by some agency that says, like from the USDA that says, you are an organic grower or you are an IPM grower. And I, I think that has to do with IPM being such a biodynamic decision system because things change all the time. Right. And you might have to make different decisions in different instances. And sometimes you get different results, even if all right. the other variables seem like they're the same. Um, it, there's just so many different aspects and so many different um, ways that you can go. It's kind of like a choose your own adventure kind of aspect where um, something shows up and you get to use a variety of different tools uh, before you might get to, to the point of needing to spray or possibly not. Right. It's just, it's a case-by-case case basis, right? Absolutely. And that's just, it's mother nature, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it changes season to season, year to year, and um, growers will keep track of what they did and what the outcomes were. And the following year, you know, it might be the same vineyard, but it's a different year. You get different weather events, right. different pests. Um, yeah. You can sometimes get new invasive species that come in, and it it's just such a dynamic system that, changes and it's going to respond differently to the different things that you do. Are there any pests that you see really commonly in vineyards or is it totally like variable? It's variable depending on location. So where I'm from in Washington state, uh, we don't see really high levels of phylloxera necessarily compared to other areas, perhaps in California, 
um, and other places. Uh, you'll have, um, depending on the environment as well, if you're in uh, high up in the mountains, you're going to have a different pest spectrum compared to maybe somewhere low or somewhere close to a river. Right. Uh, so you have these sort of microclimates that create different um, different kind of pest situations. So aphids, uh, mites are, are a big one. Um, uh, stink bugs are, we have a brown, a new invasive brown marmorated stink bug that can cause issues in vineyards. Um, and, and we have another new one that so far is only in Pennsylvania, but spotted lanternfly um, is, is another one. And when you look at a pest species that has a lot of alternative hosts besides what you're trying to grow, that's a big problem. What, what do you mean by that? By the host range? Yeah. Yeah, so when you look at an organism and look at all of the different kinds of plants that it can live on, the, the higher the variety, the bigger a problem it can be to agriculture. Um, so like this spotted lantern or whatever. The yeah, spotted lantern fly. <laughs> can basically just like fuck up a bunch of different kinds Absolutely. of hosts? Okay. Yeah, so, so they have a broad host range. Um, they're polylectic, which means they like a lot of different kinds of things. So uh, they, they like grapes, they like hops, they like tree fruit and pome fruit. Um, they can also be a pest in forestry systems. Uh, so if you think about... Let's say in a highly idealistic situation, you have like all these different crops side by side and you see them in your grapes. And so you spray your grapes. Well, they're also in other things. And so that's like an untreated refuge. And when you have an untreated refuge, that means that as soon as your uh, control tactic in that one system ends or runs out or the residues fizzle out, then they can move from that other system back into your system. Oh, right. And here's so where... just like hopscotching around. Oh, totally. Yeah. Okay. And so um, like spotted wing drosophila uh, likes blackberries, but it also really likes cherries. And so if you have wild blackberry plants around your cherry orchard, you sort Which of... Just everywhere in Washington. <laughs> yeah. Like... Yeah. Especially if you go like onto the west side where there's like a, a blueberry and raspberry production and there are wild blackberries everywhere like where you and I went yeah. to school there's mm-hmm. wild blackberries everywhere god I miss that <laughs> I miss that too oh my gosh I had so many good pies yeah. um, oh god but but those those growing just sort of in the periphery in residential zones or or you have somebody who uh, has a cherry tree in their backyard um, that's just a single tree and then you you live next door to a, a an economically producing orchard um that oh, can be shit. a problem. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, and there are some regulations saying that even if you do have a handful of trees in your backyard, that you do need to be taking pest management steps. Um, like just he, Joe Schmo down the street has to have some... Some sort of pest management plan, which is tricky. How do you regulate that? Right. Yeah, how do you how do you hold people accountable for that? And it's hard. Wait, so, when, so let's <laughs> say I buy a house. Uh-huh. And I have a cherry tree in my backyard. Yeah. Somebody's going to tell me that I have to have some sort of IPM plan for my cherry tree in my backyard. Maybe not necessarily an IPM plan, but some sort of pest management plan in general. Really? Because when you think about what's good for you. Who tells me that? I believe it's the USDA. Um, how do they fucking know I have a cherry tree in my backyard? They probably don't. Because again, how do you regulate that? How, how do you know? And... Yeah, it's, it's pretty tricky because the other part of it is uh, it's in the orchardist who lives next to you or, or whoever is next to you. It's yeah. in their best interest that you do that, right? Right. And so, like, I have friends who, who have a handful of trees and 
their neighbor might come over and spray for them or come over and, and Im implement whatever pest management system that they're using, whether that's a, a mating disruption or, or chemical inputs. Um, yeah. this, this is blowing my mind. Yeah. So, <laughs> so like if you, if you buy or graft onto, like if you go to, I don't know, a nursery and you mm -hmm. buy a, a tree that's going to produce some stone fruit or whatever, mm -hmm. or a, a rootstock or whatever, and you're grafting onto it, is somebody like, oh, Kayleen bought... Somebody's probably not going to do that. It's going to be more of a, you should probably take responsibility for it because you live in this agricultural area that depends on that. So it's more like a don't be an asshole thing? Yeah, unless pretty much. A, oh. I mean, I, I don't, honestly, I don't even know how they regulate it. Um, but, but they I, should. Yeah, absolutely. It, it makes it tough. Yeah. But um, again whoever you're around, it's in their best interest to help you out with that. Because right. you're somebody who doesn't have any agriculture experience moving into uh, a highly agricultural area that, um, that doesn't necessarily know that. I mean, right. how, how are they supposed to know? <laughs> right. Yeah, good point. So, yeah, it's, it's tricky. Whoa. Okay. So how can an entomologist, like what is, have you, when you work with vineyard managers, mm -hmm. what do you guys like talk about? What do you, how do you help a vineyard manager make IPM decisions. Yeah, so so an entomologist uh, is just, or entomology in general, is just a small piece of the pie. I mean, we're looking at other different management aspects too, such as you know, irrigation and pruning, and uh, we look like plant pathology. There are a lot of other slices to the pie that contribute to growing quality fruit or mm -hmm. growing quality food. Uh, so an entomologist can help with, again, correctly identifying whether or not there is a pest or a natural enemy present. Um, we can also look at the actual densities of those populations and help make those decisions. So another important thing about integrated pest management is that it's a threshold-based uh, control system. So you're monitoring these certain pests, uh, you're looking at the densities of their populations, you're also monitoring your natural enemies to see if the ratio of good insects to bad ones are in the sort of check and balance uh, like you would find it in, in nature of, right. of uh, some sort of predator controlling uh, their prey population. Uh, so when we look at it in, in an entomological um, system, uh, looking at those population densities of the pest, you're going to have what's called an action threshold and what's called an economic injury level. And so as that population increases over time and approaches the action threshold, that's when you want to implement whatever form of control you are going to implement, whether that's spraying or, or pruning differently or doing something different. And these thresholds are set for each individual species? Yeah, and so this okay. is where uh, entomological research, especially at like an extension center uh, where they're working directly with growers and, and their research is heavily applied. Um, they will have an action threshold for different kinds of, of insect or, or mite pests. For example, um, there's a threshold for uh, spider mites, and it's probably different in grapes than it is from uh, hops than it is from, from tree fruit. Um, but as it approaches that action threshold, that's when it's time to get moving. If, if you didn't do that and the population still increased and approaches the economic injury level, that is the population density at which economic damage is happening, money is being lost. Because if you think about the, the cost of inputs versus what you're getting out of your system in terms of income, you have to take those checks and balances into uh, consideration. So you basically have 
a step one where you say, I'm going to do something about this. Mm-hmm. And if it continues to get worse, it's going to yeah. hit that economic threshold. And then you have to decide if you're just going to shit can it all or if you're going to. Yeah. Like... I mean, when things get super out of whack, which hopefully that that preventative aspect beforehand prevents you from from reaching that point. Yeah. But the other neat thing about IPM is, again, we're not trying to eradicate. We're not trying to completely remove it out of the system. Again, right. you need natural enemies to to help with those checks and balances. Right. And if they totally. don't have anything to eat, then yeah. you're not going to have any natural enemies. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so so it's important to be a little bit more tolerant of a little bit of damage, um, whether or not that has an economic uh, implication or not. Uh, just a tiny little bit, just to be a little bit more patient, uh, which is difficult uh, when... when the stakes are high in agriculture and you yeah. want to produce quality fruit. People don't like bugs in their fruit. Right. Um, and it's a year-long project. Absolutely. You know? And every year is sort of like you're learning new things. And, and since every year is different, um, you're adapting and trying to be resilient Yeah. Uh, based off of what's thrown at you that year. Yeah, absolutely. Well, how do you... <clears throat> looking into the future of like IPM and vineyards, do you think that... Like, what what direction do you see IPM going in with vineyards? Do you see, like, a sustainability route? Do you see, like, what, I guess, this is such a dumb question, but I kind of like it, too. It's like, it's not dumb. You know, (laughs) it's, like, how do you see IPM integrating into vineyards more as we we go and progress? Yeah, so reach... Especially with regards towards, like, how the climates are changing and, you know... Yeah, so um, I'm probably a little bit biased because I worked on an invasive species, um, but with... uh, climate change and with more globalization as we start moving items and goods across countries more frequently and things are sort of getting scrambled up uh, by climate change as well. Uh, I think we're going to start seeing, well, there's there's evidence to suggest that we are seeing more invasive species constantly. And so that's like the rate of introduction of invasive yeah, species is yeah. higher than it has been before. Yep. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, fucked up. <laughs> yeah, it's a bummer. Yeah. Uh, but then again, <laughs> hey, it's job security for me, right? I guess. So, <laughs> Unfortunately. And uh, to me, an invasive species, as devastating as it can be, it's kind of an exciting time because you get to do something new and, um, and cooperate and collaborate with other scientists as well. But uh, that, that is a, a big role that entomologists will play is... Uh, looking at new invasive species and, and understanding how they interact with their new environment that they have uh, recently come into or been introduced to. Um, but also, there's always room for improvement. These uh, current IPM methods that we have are constantly being improved upon, uh, more well understood. Um, there, there's always something to look at, other, other ways and other tools to put into growers' toolboxes. Awesome. That was a great answer. Thank oh, you. thanks. Yeah. <laughs> So we're going to close up with some questions that are not bug related, but Ooh. <laughs> are still very valuable in my opinion. Um, these are questions that Alex did not know beforehand, as I know, usual. She just turned the computer away from me. Yeah, like, you can't what see is happening? Uh, so this first question is, how do you eat your M&Ms? <laughs> and is it different from how you eat your Skittles? Oh my gosh, I love M&Ms and I also love Skittles, especially the sour ones. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, and I have a very systems approach to how I consume both of those candies. Same. Like, it's Holy a, it's cow, a big this deal. is funny that this is a question. Okay, so I sort them by color, mm-hmm. and I create a... Is this your M&M's or your Skittles? Both of them. I, okay. I, I have a very similar approach to both of them. Okay. Um, so I sort them by color, and I create a, a sort of a histogram. <laughs> 
This is nerdy. How did candy become nerdy? Uh, so I create a histogram of each color. And and I really like the the more warmer color one. I mean, in M&M's, there's like no flavor difference. But right. with Skittles, it's totally different. But yeah. And I approach them the same. And I eat the more warmer colored ones first. Huh. But I always try to make them so that they're equal. And you always get more of, like, the lemon-lime ones, which I really don't care for yeah, in Skittles. But I, I try to eat most of those first so that I can get to, like, the good ones for last. I eat down to the least common denominator. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. like, if I have a handful of M&Ms and I have, like, three brown, two yellow, four red, <laughs> and one blue, uh-huh. I'll get them all down to one. Yeah, And I put yeah. them in rainbow order. And then I eat them in the order of the rainbow. Very nice. But brown replaces purple. Are you a histogrammer? I'm not a histogrammer. (laughs) No, I'm a rainbow grammar. I'm a a candy histogrammer. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I guess we're going to talk about food today. What's your current food obsession? Oh my gosh. Lentils and garbs. I love garbanzo beans. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm having like a a garb obsession right now. Um, yeah, and then uh, my my family, um, they have a small, what we like to call a hobby farm. They have about two and a half acres in the middle of the city in Wenatchee. Um, mm-hmm. we're, we're what we call islanders, and so they have this amazing garden. Every ingredient that you can think of that goes into salsa, they grow, <laughs> um, which is like a great way of describing like, the variety of what they do. Um, and, and we always make salsa every year. But we also started growing potatoes, and so mm, I've been trying to like come up potatoes. with good ways yeah and they're not just like plain jane potatoes they're like super colorful and they grow into funky shapes Mm -hmm. and so i've been doing a lot with a lot with potatoes Mm -hmm. (laughs) what's the dumbest thing you did in college oh god (laughs) (laughs) do my exes count (laughs) how many do i get to oh the dumbest the dumbest the dumbest 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 thing i ever did (laughs) I mean, caveat, you were pretty responsible. But. I, you know, I was on I was on the rowing team when I was going to school. I didn't really have a lot of room for error because I had to wake up at 4.15, five days a week. We got to okay, sleep in. Okay, that's the dumbest thing you ever did. <laughs> <laughs> we got to sleep in on Saturday till 5.15. Um, yeah, I didn't really have a lot of, uh, of room to, to do anything super, super stupid. <laughs> oh, you know, okay, this, this is devastating to me to this day because it was very stupid. I left my high school graduation present, which was this incredible mountain bike. Okay, I, I was pretty um, sheltered early on. This was my first bike that had disc brakes. Ooh, super fancy. Oh, I thought I was fancy, and the rest of the world was like, nice of you to join us. Um, <laughs> like it's 2012, by the way. Yeah, Welcome. but I, I left it locked, which you think that that would be secure. I left it locked in front of the rec center on campus over spring break. That puppy was gone. Yeah, that was really dumb. <laughs> I know, and I was devastated. And I, I've lost two other bikes since then. Um, I just have bad luck with bikes uh, in terms of them getting stolen. But that's probably the stupidest thing because I'm a little bit idealistic. I, I want to believe that, that people are going to be respectful of other people's belongings. Unfortunately, that's not necessarily I think the a lot of people are really impressed that that's in. the dumbest thing you've done in college. Oh, okay. That's impressive. Well, I yeah, I, I kick myself yeah. every time I think about it. Because there were other opportunities for me to protect that bike, and I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> if you had an extra hour in the day, what would you do with it? it? It's changed. When I was in grad school, if I had an extra hour for my day, um, I can't tell you how many times people 
would would see my Instagram and see that I was hiking a lot while I was writing. I mean, I'm not going to show pictures of my of me writing for 10 hours a day. That's so boring. But I would go hiking a lot. Um, and then I was always told, you should be writing. I think everybody gets told that in grad school. If I had an extra hour, I would not write. I feel like I got on a lot of hiking during that time, which was nice. But sleep. Yeah, sleep is a common one that people Reading say. for fun. Oh, what? Holy crap. I <laughs> What is this thing you're talking right? about? Right? <laughs> <laughs> what is re-adding? <laughs> yeah. um, for, I, uh, for re- yeah, reading about something that didn't involve an insect would be pretty cool. Um, <laughs> and it's funny what the internet does for you because when, when my husband and I moved into our apartment when I started grad school, uh, we didn't have any Wi-Fi for a week and a half. And we went to the bookstore in Pullman, which I love the used bookstore there. And we bought, I don't know, maybe a dozen books each. And we read all of them over the course of like maybe nine days, ten days, because we didn't have Wi-Fi. Crazy. And we also didn't have air conditioning. And so we just like try to hunker down like with the the blinds closed when when the sun would go through the windows and just like read constantly that's kind of cool oh it was it was lovely so if i had an extra hour i guess either catching up on sleep or reading for fun now if i had an extra hour whether it's daylight or not probably an extra hour of trail running and just getting outside and reconnecting with nature because i I spend a lot of my time outside as an entomologist now just um looking at at traps looking at uh, trials that are out in the field uh, that's fun, but it's usually not at high elevation, and I love right. mountains. So. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Oh, there's so many things that I'd like to do with an extra hour. <laughs> and then the last question, as it always is, is what are you thankful for today? Oh, today. Oh, my brain just immediately just went to friends. Um, yeah, it's just so nice to have this incredible network of friends to to share what I'm worried about or what I'm happy about and... Um, and I have friends that are super supportive of, of whatever I'm going through and, and helping me through that. I'm just, I'm very grateful for friendship. Nice. And is there anything that you want to promote? Any projects that you're working on? Anything that you really give a shit about that you want oh, people to know about? Yeah, Where can absolutely. people find you? Oh, so people you can know? find me at, uh, on Instagram at, at trail running entomologist. Um, basically it's an Instagram dedicated mostly to my dog. Let's be honest. (laughs) It's totally Remy's Instagram. Um, but you'll also find a lot of like fun insect, uh, sort of, uh, projects or other plant pathology things that I'm working on. Um, and so when I'm out looking at trials that I'm conducting, looking at experiments, um, I'm learning things about plant pathology and, and weed science, not pot science, but like weeds that are growing in your garden kind of science. It's too bad. I know. It's too bad. Maybe in the future. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's an opportunity for you. Yeah. Um, but I, I like to uh, to sort of educate myself and also put in these little fun facts that might be an interesting for other people to, to know about. Yeah. They're super cool. On my Instagram. Thank you. Yeah. My other favorite A lot thing, of it kind of goes over my head sometimes, but. Hey, it, it's over my head too until I start digging into it. Yeah. And sure. uh, that's what I like about it. But the other fun thing that I like to do, it's like my favorite game when it comes to if somebody wants to send me a, a picture of an insect and says, hey, what is this? I probably get a dozen to maybe 20 of those a day. 
Holy shit. And people are like, I'm so sorry if I'm bothering you with this. Are you kidding? That's like my favorite thing. Yeah. So please don't be a stranger. Send me some pictures of bugs. <laughs> I'll do my best to tell you what they are and maybe some fun, interesting facts about them. I've gotten a lot of pompilid wasps recently, which are the tra- tarantula hawk wasps. They're a, a parasitoid. Hawk, guys. Oh, they're so cool. I mean, they, they can really fuck you up, but, um, yeah. but they don't really want to. They're more interested in spiders. Um, but yeah, that's a fun game. And I, I like to create, um, sort of these, uh, groups of pictures of ones that people have sent me in a given week and and talk about how interesting they are. Cause yeah, they, they might sting or bite or do these other things that we don't necessarily like, but they have a place in ecology. They have a place in nature and I really appreciate them. And it's, it's fun to find the beauty in in what they are and what they look like and, and what roles they play. Cool. Well, thank you so much for sitting down today and talking about bugs. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. Yeah. Have a good day, everybody. Thank you.